Good afternoon and welcome uh, to all of you who have joined us today for our second lecture in the Alpheus T. Mason Lectures on Constitutional Law and Political Thought. Uh, this lecture series is sponsored by John Hansel of the class of 46, uh, who is a student of Professor Mason's and who has made this lecture series possible. Um, as some of you may know, uh, he was the third McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence, following in the footsteps of uh, Woodrow Wilson and uh, Edward S. Corwin, uh, and following Alpheus T. Mason was uh, uh, Walter Murphy and our very own Robert George, uh, who's the director of the James Madison program, who is also with us today. Um, the topic today is one that could foreseeably affect all of us at some point in our lives. We're dealing with life and death issues as we talk about bioethics and euthanasia. And we're very fortunate today to have with us uh, Wesley Smith, who is a public advocate and writer. He is formally trained as a lawyer, and he decided uh, after several years of practicing law in California to uh, fulfill his calling of participating in public debates about important social and moral issues. Some of you may know him as a consumer advocate. who He has written books with Ralph Nader, uh, four of them, I believe. Uh, he, some of you may also have read uh, opinion pieces by him in such uh, notable publications as Newsweek, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal. Uh, but today, the, the side of Wesley Smith that we all are going to uh, have the privilege of enjoying is uh, Wesley Smith, who is a committed defender of equality and of the sanctity of human life. Um, he is going to focus today on his most recent book, uh, which is titled The Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. And this book uh, will be available uh, to any who might be interested in purchasing it uh, at the reception that follows uh, this lecture. Uh, so without any more, uh, please join me in welcoming Wesley Smith. Thank you, Shana. Can you all hear me? Good afternoon. It's my first time to Princeton. Wow. It's uh, gorgeous, and I want to thank you all for coming to see me when you could be out in such a beautiful day. What a spectacular, uh, beautiful campus and city and uh, weather. Uh, one of the books I wrote with Ralph Nader was called Collision Course, The Truth About Airline Safety. Uh, you may uh, be interested to know that when I left my house to fly here yesterday afternoon, my hair was jet black. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, life is not as uh, easy and as uh, relaxed as it once was when we flew, but it's uh, just as important. Um, I think that the events that we are going through today, well, certainly quite different from the issues that I will be dealing with, do reflect upon the importance of human life and the urgency with which we in the West look at human life as having inherent moral worth. I think if anything uh, Osama bin Laden did wrong or misconstrued when he launched his attack upon us was that he thought we would care about the buildings more than the people. 
What we cared about and what we do care about and what we still grieve and why we fight are the people, the people who were murdered. And that is the heritage of the West, in my opinion. And I'm afraid, while certainly not in the same way, that there are those among us who are seeking to undermine our commitment, our universal commitment to the equality or sanctity of human life. And I'm not making an, a moral equivalence between Osama bin Laden and people such as Peter Singer, who I will be talking about. I'm not making that in the least. But I do believe that people such as Peter Singer and others in the bioethics movement are undermining universal human equality and the belief in the sanctity and inherent value of human life. In essence, this country is facing what might be called a transition, or at least there's a struggle for the heart and soul, first of medicine and health care, and I believe from there to the rest of society. And what happens in health care and what happens in medicine and medical ethics is really crucial because, in a sense, it's like that cliché of the canary in the coal mine. Healthcare ethics, medical ethics are probably our highest and best, our most altruistic in terms of the professions, supposedly our most selfless in terms of the professions. And so it seems to me, and I'm certainly not the first one to say this, that if our health care ethics, our medical ethics, and our public policy surrounding health care are sound, then chances are you're going to have a sounder, greater society. At the same time, if they're under assault, and if they are moving away from an equality of life, a sanctity of life perspective, towards one that views some people as having greater moral worth than other people, which I'm afraid is happening, then, like the canary in the coal mine that begins to joke, choke and gasp, our society as a whole may also have some troubles with regard to its morality and its value systems. So what we face here, and I think Professor Singer epitomizes the struggle and his uh, advocacy, is a struggle between the equality of human life and the value of human life based on quality of life. Thomas Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, and of course we would today would say people, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Bioethics, I'm afraid, does no longer believe in the self-evident truth. As I think I will demonstrate, it doesn't believe that we are all equal. It doesn't believe that religious values have any place in the public square. And I disagree with that. All values have a place in the public square. It doesn't believe in inalienable rights, nor does it believe in the right to life, generally speaking. And at this point, I have to say, I'm going to be making some general comments. Now, there are going to be, of course, people who disagree within bioethics about what I'm going to say. But I don't want to have to start interrupting my train of thought by saying, now, of course, there are people who disagree with every point I make. But be aware that there are people in bioethics who disagree with what I'm going to be describing for you. But I do believe that what I'm going to be describing represents mainstream thinking within the movement, at least to a, uh, a, a pretty uh, solid degree. Some people are more enthusiastic about these issues than others. I also want to say that I'm not attacking the healthcare professions. Sometimes when I speak, uh, nurses get their feelings hurt, doctors get their feelings hurt, and that is certainly not my intent. I believe that health care practice in this country remains a moral enterprise, but I believe it remains a moral enterprise precisely because of the people who work in health care, particularly the nurses, 
Think about being a nurse in today's managed healthcare environment with staffing cuts. I've talked to nurses who've come up to me with tears in their eyes about how they're thinking of getting out of nursing because they can't be nurses anymore. All they can do is be bureaucrats and write down uh, uh, items on charts, but they can't nurture patients. And I've talked to doctors who are getting out of medicine because they can no longer be doctors because of managed care. 12-minute FaceTimes with patients. When you take that kind of uh, managed health care system where the economics of medicine are made not from providing services but from cutting costs, and then you mix it with the, with the philosophy of bioethics that looks at some uh, patients as having less value than other patients, not coincidentally, these patients also tend to be the most expensive. And when you take managed care and you take bioethics and you put them together, I submit you end up with the perfect storm. Real danger to elderly people, disabled people, dying people, chronically ill people, prematurely born people. And that is uh, what I am here to talk about. In fact, culture of death, in a sense, I feel like I'm being Paul Revere. I'm trying to alert people in the general society about what is being discussed and what the stakes are in that discussion, which is often taking place above uh, the popular culture and above the popular media because the popular media doesn't write about these things all that often and when they do they don't provide much context. But what happens at the academic level is very important. What happens in the journals is very important because it tends to and definitely does in my view affect real people in the, in the lives they live and in the deaths they die. What don't I like about the mainstream thinking in bioethics today? First off, it has rejected, in my view, the Hippocratic Oath. And that's really a, a crucial thing. Um, let me read you from Sherwin Newland what he wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine, February 24, 2000. Most of you probably know who Sher Dr. Sherwin Newland is. He's a physician. He's at Yale. Don't hold that against him. And um, he wrote the book, How We Die which was a New York Times bestseller. My books haven't been, so I do hold that against him. Uh, but he wrote something, I think, quite alarming. Uh, a study came out that I won't have time to describe to you from the Netherlands, which found that doctors who engaged in assisted suicide and euthanasia reported some terrible side effects, that it wasn't just the quiet, gentle, take the pill and you're dead, peacefully in every case, but that in many cases, particularly with assisted suicide, there were what they call complications, problems of completion, extended coma, convulsions, vomiting, things of that sort. 16% uh, and higher in assisted suicide and 6% or so in euthanasia. And Sherwin Newland decided to write about that in the New England Journal of Medicine in, the, in an editorial, and he basically wrote that instead of not going in that direction and finding better ways to care for people, what we have to do is train doctors how to kill, which I find quite alarming, but that's not what I'm raising here with this comment. Here's what he said uh, that I think is important about the Hippocratic Oath. He said, quote, many opponents of these practices, euthanasia, assisted suicide, point to the Hippocratic Oath and its prohibition on hastening death. But those who turn to the oath in an effort to shape or legitimize their ethical viewpoints must realize that the statement has been embraced over, the, over approximately the past 200 years far more as a symbol of professional cohesion than for its content. Well, I suggest to Professor New, uh, Newland that if he wants professional cohesion, he join the Rotary Club. The Hippocratic Oath primarily is there to protect the patient. 
And that's how patients view the oath. When I tell patients, uh, lay audiences, that only about 13% of the doctors in this country take the Hippocratic Oath, there is inevitably a gasp of alarm. And why do they gasp? They gasp because they look at the oath as the pledge of the doctor to hold each and every one of them as having equal inherent and ultimate moral worth. That the doctor is saying by taking this oath, and it isn't the words that count, but it is the value system behind the oath, the do no harm concept of practicing medicine, thank you, that they will give each and every patient optimal care, that they will hold each and every patient as having ultimate worth, that they as fiduciaries will put each and every patient as individuals first and foremost. That is under attack today in bioethics. Many in bioethics say, no, no, those days are gone. What we have to have a doctor do is be in, in charge of a group, and that the doctor's loyalty should be to the group or to the HMO or even to the society. In other words, the doctor is being told that he or she has divided loyalties. Instead of uniquely to each and every individual, it is to a greater whole. And what happens is, in that kind of circumstance, the doctor is to give optimal care to some people but not others. Well, how is that going to be determined? That's probably going to be determined by whatever prejudices the doctor has with regard to whether it's based on sex, sexual orientation, race, whatever, or based on even perhaps personal like and dislike. In fact, Dr. Newland goes on to say, ultimately, a physician's conduct at the bedside is a matter of individual conscience. If a doctor's actions at the bedside is only a matter of individual conscience, then the doctor, I submit, is no longer a professional. Because a professional puts the patient first, not his or her own self first. As a lawyer, there have been times when I have had to do things that I was not happy about. Because under my individual conscience, I wouldn't do them for a client. But by that time, my client was my client, and I had a duty of ultimate loyalty to that client. And as long as I did not violate the uh, ethics of my profession, such as putting on perjured testimony, which I, of course, would never do, then it isn't up to me to say my client isn't going to get the best that I have. Who am I to do that? That client has put his or her legal troubles in my hands. And the same thing is true, I submit, about doctors. It is not up to the doctor to decide, based on his or her individual conscience, what will be done, but up to professional obligations which have lasted now for 2,500 years. Bioethics also generally believes that for purposes of creating public policy, and medical ethics, that human life should not be viewed as something unique and special, but that we are mere organisms like other biological organisms on the planet. And therefore, we have to come up with the criteria for which any organism or being or entity, and this is how they tend to write, will be judged and valued. And let me um, go back to the beginning of bioethics, which isn't very long ago. It's only about 30 or 40 years to, to show how this worked out. Bioethics began approximately in the late 60s, early 70s as a very important discourse between uh, theologians, uh, medical professionals, and academic philosophers about what to do about health care, public policy, and medical ethics 
as we entered the high-tech medical age, particularly with regard to kidney dialysis machines, when there were more patients who needed dialysis than there were machines to provide that dialysis. It was a very important discussion. And uh, bioethics eventually, and actually quite quickly, broke down into two schools. One was led by Joseph Fletcher, and this was the utilitarian school. And uh, I, I'm not going to give a philosophy lecture, um, and, but bioethics tends to be utilitarian. Some bioethicists reject that label. They call themselves communitarian. Um, but it's, in my view, utilitarian, whether explicitly or based on outcomes implicitly. Um, the other school was Paul Ramsey, a theologian who uh, took a sanctity of life approach. And they had what uh, Al Johnson, who's the historian, he's a bioethicist and also an historian of the movement, called a 20-year struggle for the heart and soul of bioethics. And to describe who won, when I was researching culture of death, I wanted to obtain some writing of Paul Ramsey because I was going to juxtapose what Fletcher was saying at the time with what Paul Ramsey was saying at the time. And I had a bit of a problem. Nothing Paul Ramsey wrote, as far as I could tell, remains in print. Just about everything Joseph Fletcher wrote is readily available. And the only Paul Ramsey I finally found was in a used bookstore, Powell's in Portland, Oregon, which can get, if you're ever in Oregon and you want a book you can't find, go to Powell's. And I found a compendium of Paul Ramsey's work, and so I was able to do some of this. But I find this quite unfortunate because had Paul Ramsey won the debate in, for the heart and soul of bioethics, and again, there are people in bioethics who still believe in sanctity of life, but the, the general trend, and it seems to me the leading lights of the movement and those who have the most influence, I submit, do not, uh, we would have a very different situation than we have today. Joseph Fletcher is also the man who came up with situational ethics. He's, in my view, the most important American philosopher in the last half of the 20th century. At least he's the most influential. Um, situational ethics, I think, broke down into relativism. And Joseph Fletcher, uh, who Al Johnson calls the patriarch of bioethics, turned that movement towards utilitarianism, again, if not explicitly, at least in terms of implicit outcomes. And in the early 70s, he wrote a very important piece in the Hastings Center uh, report. The Hastings Center is probably the preeminent bioethics think tank in the world. It's in New York. And this is when the Hastings Center was very young. And he wrote an article called um, Quality of Human Life, uh, in which he talked about creating a criteria for humanhood. His point was that we cannot say that human life is valuable and of ultimate worth simply because it's human, but that we have to come up with the reasons why human life should be valued. And he came up with this list of positives and negatives. Among them are minimum intelligence, self-awareness, which he said is essential to the role of personality, self-control, a sense of futurity, quote, subhuman animals do not look forward in time. Now, Professor Singer might disagree with that. Memory, concern for others, communication, neocortical function, quote, in the absence of the synthesizing function of the cerebral cortex, the person is non-existent. Such persons are objects, not subjects. Now think about what he's saying. He is saying that some human beings among us are objects and not subjects. To me, that's the epitome of arrogance and hubris, to be able to write 
human beings out of the subject category and classification. Well, some people objected to what Joseph Fletcher wrote, some physicians who take care of developmentally disabled children in particular, who said, how dare you say that our patients are less human than other people? And particularly since most of them are quite happy. They're gentle, they're forgiving, they're loving. And he wrote, uh, Joseph Fletcher wrote back in an essay in which he said, and I quote, and this is really awful language, Idiots are not, never were, and never will be in any degree responsible, excuse me, responsible, because they cannot understand the consequences of action. Idiots, that is to say, are not human. The problem they pose is not lack of sufficient mind, but of any mind at all. No matter how euphoric their behavior might be, they are outside the pale of human integrity. That is really awful stuff. And it harkens back, I think, to advocacy that occurred in Germany. I don't think there's any way around that. And yet this was considered a respectable argument. In fact, so respectable that I believe that it reflects much of what is going on in bioethics today. Now, not every bioethicist would be nearly as crass as this, and bioethicists certainly don't tend to talk in that kind of language. But I think, as you'll see, the inherent message of Joseph Fletcher, that some people have greater worth than other people, has been adopted throughout the bioethics movement. And that's not just a matter of philosophy, but that translates into actual policies that hurt real people. That brings me, uh, for the moment, to Peter Singer, who I will return to later, who I call son of Fletcher. <laughs> Peter Singer is perhaps the most famous proponent of the concept that is uh, pretty much generally accepted throughout bioethics, that there is such a thing as a human being, we're talking about born human beings, who is a person, and a human being who is not a person. Now, most people in bioethics agree with that concept, and Peter Singer did not originate it. But that flows directly from this idea of criteria for humanhood. They don't say human anymore because these people are clearly members of the human species. So they say the distinction now should not be whether one is a member of the human race, but whether one is a person or not a person. And bioethics is known for its discourse. There's a lot of back and forth arguing in journals, arguing at symposia, lectures, and so forth. And the criteria for deciding who and who is not a person is still being debated. Although the idea that there is such a thing as the human non-person, I believe, is, as I said, generally accepted. Peter Singer has many grounds for what is or who is a person and isn't, among which is being able to be self-aware over time. Others might say whether a being or entity can be held morally accountable. I won't go into all of the details. But, the, but what happens when you say that some people are not persons, that means those people are going to be treated differently than those of us who are considered persons. I'm not going to get into the animal rights issue for which Peter Singer is most famous, but he says that some animals are persons and while some people are not, and, and bioethics is really conflicted over that aspect of this discussion. But who are some of the people who would be considered non-persons throughout, or sometimes they use the term potential person, in bioethics? Particularly newborn infants are not considered persons. Sometimes they're called potential persons because, for example, they're not self-aware over time. They're not rational. They're not thinking in terms of having a sense of who they are. 
Others would include people with Alzheimer's disease. That means Ronald Reagan, according to bioethics, is no longer a person, to, to humanize it a bit. People with severe brain damage, for example, from an auto accident, might not be considered a person. Perhaps some psychotics might not be considered persons, particularly if they're completely out of touch with reality. Uh, people in comas, if they're not going to awaken, uh, are not considered persons. And what does that mean? Uh, let me turn away from Peter Singer for a moment to a man named John Harris, who is the Sir David Alliance Professor of Bioethics and Research um, Director for the Center of Social Ethics and Policy at the University of Manchester, England. And in December 1999, in an article entitled The Concept of the Person and the Value of Life, he wrote these words that I think are really important to understand what is going on here. And this was printed in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal, which is on the Georgetown University campus, uh, the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. And it, along with the Hastings Center Report, are probably the two most pre pre uh, preeminent bioethical journals, at least in this country and perhaps in the world. And he wrote, quote, Many, if not most, of the problems of healthcare ethics presuppose that we have a view about what sorts of beings have something that we might think of as ultimate moral worth. I would say, yeah, human beings, but they would disagree. He goes on, or if this sounds too apocalyptic, and pay close attention to this, please, then we certainly need to identify those sorts of individuals who have the highest moral value or importance. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying that in bioethics, one of their tasks is to decide which individuals have the highest moral value or importance. Now, if he were saying, we're going to decide which race had the highest moral value or importance, or which sex had the highest moral value or importance, we would say, sir, you are a bigot, and we would be right. But this is the same discriminatory attitude, I submit, merely different victims. And instead of dehumanizing people based on race or sex or some other form, we're going to dehumanize them based on health and level of ability or disability or cognitive capacity. But it's still discrimination. The answer to our problems as a human race is not to find people to discriminate against, but to end discrimination. And to find a place, and I, sometimes I'm sure our reach is exceeding our grasp, where we are all deemed equal, regardless of capacity, not to mention regardless of race and sex and so forth. What does this mean if, if some of us have lower moral worth than others because we are not deemed to be persons? Harris goes on to say, personhood provides a species-neutral way of grouping creatures, this is how bioethicists tend to write, that have lives that it would be wrong to end by killing or by letting die. These may include animals, machines, extraterrestrials, gods, angels, and devils. Persons who want to live are wrong by being killed because they are thereby deprived of something they value. In other words, killing isn't wrong because it's wrong. We have to find a reason for killing to be wrong. And, and the reason, according to Harris is, and, and many others in bioethics, is because they're being deprived of something they value. He goes on to talk a little bit about euthanasia, which I won't get into. He then says, non-persons or potential persons cannot be wronged in this way because death does not deprive them of anything they can value. If they cannot wish to live, they cannot have that wish frustrated by being killed. Let's be blunt. What Harris is talking about 
is deciding who we can kill and get a good night's sleep. And again, if he were talking about race or gender, nobody would accept this. Why is it acceptable at universities and in the intelligentsia and in medical journals to talk about these issues because of people's uh, cognitive capacity? If we believe in the equality of all human life, surely that should be as beyond the pale as anything David Duke would say about black folk. And I submit there's no distinction to be made except the, different, the victims are different. Another bioethicist named Jonathan Glover, in talking about infanticide, but this is relevant because he's talking about whether a, the, um, a person who cannot object to being killed is wrong by being killed. He's saying this objection to killing provides no argument against infanticide, for newborn babies have no conception of death and so cannot have any preference for life over death. The objection to infanticide is at most no stronger than the objection to frustrating a baby's current set of desires, say, by leaving him to cry unattended for a longish period. This is ridiculous and appalling. And I'm sure that that statement is even too extreme for most folk in, the, in, in bioethics. But Jonathan Glover has been around for many years and is a pioneer of the movement. And I am told, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but hearsay tells me that he was actually offered the chair Peter Singer got before Peter Singer was offered the chair, which would say something quite, I think, appalling in and of itself. And I don't know if that's true. But if it is, then the people who were looking for that chair were looking for a person with certain values. And I submit they weren't human values. Tom Beecham, along these same lines, again talking about person versus non-person, Tom Beecham is important. He's at, the, at Georgetown University. Again, he's writing in the Institute of Ethics Journal, December 1999. He's the co-author of a book uh, which he wrote with a man named James Childress called The Principles of Biomedical Ethics, which is the premier textbook in bioethics. And he said, because many humans lack properties of personhood or are less than full persons, they are thereby rendered equal or inferior in moral standing to some non-humans. If this conclusion is defensible, we will need to rethink our traditional view that these unlucky humans cannot be treated in the ways we treat relevantly similar non-humans. For example, they might be aggressively used as human research subjects and sources of organs. What he's saying is that if a human being is not a person, that that human being can be viewed as a mere natural resource to be harvested. Think about that and the implications that that has for our society and particularly for the people who are most weak and vulnerable among us. A bioethicist in Bol from Bowling Green uh, named R.J. Frey says something similar. And this is in a journal called Between the Species, Volume 4, Number 1, 1988, page 196. Because some human lives fall drastically below the quality of life of normal adult human life, we must face the prospect that the lives of some perfectly healthy animals have a higher quality and greater value than the lives of some humans. And we must face this prospect with all the implications it may have for the use of these unfortunate humans by others. At least if we continue to justify the use of animals in medical scientific research by appeal to the lower quality and value of their lives. 
So we can see what happens when we decide to judge human life based on a quality of life judgment system as opposed to an equality of life or sanctity of life judgment system. Value of human life becomes subjective rather than objective. And those that are deemed to have less value suddenly become expedient uh, natural resources for the use of others, persons, and for their benefit. Let's turn to Peter Singer for a little bit. Peter Singer is uh, famous for two things around the world. Some would say infamous. He is most famous and most notable for the person who probably did more than anyone else to start the animal liberation movement, animal rights movement, which I'm not going to talk about today. But he's also known as the preeminent advocate of legalizing infanticide. And again, we're not talking about abortion. We're talking about infanticide, killing babies after birth. Peter Singer used to say that parents should have 28 days within which to keep or kill their children, depending on utilitarian value judgments. I noticed uh, about a year ago he gave an interview in which he said, well, you know, there's really not much of a moral difference between a 27-day-year-old infant and a 29-day-year-old infant, so we can't have that. So let's make it up to one year based on a case-by-case basis. This stuff keeps spreading. Well, Peter Singer has made several statements, and a lot of times um, his critics are accused of taking them out of context. But I don't think you can take these statements out of context. Let me read just a couple to you. He's talking about Down syndrome babies in uh, his book, um, Rethinking Life and Death, in which he explicitly and quite candidly says we should do away with the sanctity of human life ethic and replace it with a quality of life ethic. We may not want a a child to start life's uncertain voyage if the prospects are clouded. When this can be shown to be at a very early stage in the voyage, we may still have a chance to make a fresh start. Now, realize what he's talking about. He's very adept at using very passive words to talk about very awful things. He's talking about killing. This means detaching ourselves from the infant who has been born, cutting ourselves free before the ties that have already begun to bind us to our child have become irresistible. Instead of going forward and putting all our efforts into making the best of the situation, in other words, instead of unconditionally loving our baby, he goes on to say, we can still say no, in other words, kill the child, and start again from the beginning. You know... The best human beings I've ever met have been Down syndrome people. Gentle, kind, hardworking, forgiving, compassionate. These, I submit, are some of the best traits of humanity, and yet you never hear these traits discussed. At least I haven't by Professor Singer or by other bioethicists. Mainly what they talk about is intelligence. Well, some of the worst people I've ever met have been the smartest. That is not how we should judge people. And I'm not saying intelligent people should be viewed of lower moral worth than stupid people, but they should be viewed the same, not different. Another quote from Peter Singer. This time he was talking about a hemophiliac child. And this is in his book Practical Ethics, which, of course, is read in virtually every philosophy department, perhaps in the world, at least in the West. When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, 
The total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of a happier life for the second. In this point, he's talking about children that parents would have in the future and that they would be improved if they didn't have an older brother or sister who had the disability of hemophilia. Therefore, if killing the hemophiliac infant has no adverse effect on others, what about the baby? It would, according to the total view, be right to kill him. Now, I submit that's not taken out of context. Peter Singer is often described in the media as saying um, infanticide should be all right for severely disabled infants. It has nothing to do with disability. It has to do with personhood. Peter Singer does not believe an infant is a person. That's why it is acceptable to kill an infant, not because the infant is disabled. Peter Singer is not a bigot against disabled people, physically disabled people, who are persons in his view because they've got the appropriate mental capacity. Now, Peter Singer has had some troubles when he goes to Germany and Austria because of these value systems, this intense belief in infanticide he is demonstrated against by people who have a very long memory of the uh, hol medical holocaust in Germany, in which 250,000 disabled infants and disabled adults were killed by German doctors. And they were not, quote, Nazi doctors in the sense that they were forced by uh, Hitler to do it. They were doctors who had been propagandized in favor of these kinds of value systems from 1920, long before Hitler was a dark cloud on the horizon, starting with a book called Permission to Destroy Life Unworthy of Life by Carl Binding and Alfred Hoch, who said there were three categories of killable people, 1920. People who were terminally ill, people who were unconscious, and those they pejoratively labeled the idiots who were draining society of needed resources. We've already seen what Joseph Fletcher used that same term. And they said, and this is the first time in my studies I've seen the term, that it was a matter of a right to die. It's the first time I've heard that term or found the term, the first use of that term. And that it was a healing treatment, they said in this book. That led in 1927 to a survey in which 70% plus of parents of disabled children thought it would be okay for doctors to put their children to sleep. By the time Hitler came to power, the euthanasia consciousness, as Robert J. Lifton calls it in the Nazi doctors, was well established in Germany, but you also had eugenics and all of that going on at the same time, along with social Darwinism, anti-Semitism, and every other ism you can think of in the mother of all death cultures. Infanticide began in Germany <clears throat> in 1939 with a case called Baby Nauer, K-N-A-U-R, in which parents of parents started writing Chancellor Hitler, and of course in the in the 30s, the, the Nazis and Goebbels propagandized even further along these lines that said some people were less fit than others, and disabled people were drains on society, and we had to have the Volk and all of that myth that I, I don't have to tell you about. So people began to write letters to Hitler saying, you know, can I have euthanasia? Or what about my disabled child? I'd like to put him down. And the father of baby Nauer wrote to Chancellor Hitler and said that his child had been born with uh, defective limbs and had other difficulties, and he wanted the doctors to be able to kill the child. Hitler, Mr. Compassion, decided to send his personal physician, Carl Brandt, to check it out with instructions to the doctors that if this proved to be true, 
that they could kill this child and have no adverse legal consequences, which is what happened. Hitler then signed a directive allowing doctors to kill disabled children, and for the next six years they were killed by doctors willingly, not because they were forced, but because they thought they were doing the right thing. Midwives, doctors, if a disabled child was born, would uh, let other doctors know about it. These children got sent to various centers for healing, which was killing. In his book, um, Robert J. Lifton, in his book, The Nazi Doctors, he quotes the father of Baby Nauer, telling the father of Baby Nauer what Dr. Brandt said to him. And I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to read you that last quote I had from Peter Singer, and you tell me if you can find any difference. He, Dr. Brandt, explained to me, and again, this is the father speaking, that the Fuhrer had personally sent him, and that my son's case interested the Fuhrer very, very much. The Fuhrer wanted to explore the problem of people who had no future, those whose life was worthless. From then on, we wouldn't have to suffer from this terrible misfortune because the Fuhrer had granted us the mercy killing of our son. Later, we could have other children, handsome and healthy, of whom the right could be proud. Dr. Brandt to the father of baby Nauer. Peter Singer in Practical Ethics. When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of a happier life for the second. Therefore, if killing the hemophiliac infant has no adverse effect on others, it would, according to the total view, be right to kill him. And I submit that there is no light between Dr. Brandt and Peter Singer. Dr. Brandt was hanged at Nuremberg, and Peter Singer is teaching at Princeton. I find that remarkable and appalling. I don't want Peter Singer hanged, but I don't want him at Princeton, but it's done. But I would hope that the faculty of this university would think quite carefully before it does such a thing again. And look carefully at what Dr. Singer is actually saying. This is a treasure, this university. A national treasure. And by bringing Peter Singer here, you have, not you, the university has given him tremendous increase in respect and visibility. And it is harming people. And I frankly resent it. I didn't plan to say that, but it's really infuriating to me. It's like bringing David Duke. You wouldn't bring David Duke. You wouldn't say academic freedom for David Duke. Why do you for Peter Singer when it's the same form of bigotry? Infanticide is already happening in the world, in the Netherlands. I refer you to The Lancet, Volume 350, July 26, 1997. The Lancet is a British medical journal. And they did a survey of what's going on in the Netherlands, which just formally legalized euthanasia. Prior to last year, the Netherlands euthanasia remained technically illegal. But if the doctors followed certain guidelines, then they would not be prosecuted. Among the guidelines were the patient had to repeatedly request to be killed. Babies can't request to be killed. Now, their parents can request that they be killed, but since when are babies mere chattel? And, as I'm going to tell you, 
Not all infanticides in the Netherlands are done at the request of parents. Some are done without the parents' request. I found this quite shocking, but according to this survey, 8% of all infant deaths in the Netherlands are caused by doctors killing them. Not 8% of all infants, but 8% of all infant deaths. About 1,040 infants die each year in the Netherlands, according to this article, which means about 90 are killed each year by doctors, often based on quality of life decisions. They call it a livable life. According to the surveys, 45% of neonatologists have killed babies and 31% of pediatricians have killed babies. That's appalling. You know, in World War II, when the Netherlands was occupied, the Germans tried to force and coerce Dutch doctors to start following the path that had been blazed by German doctors. And they refused. They took down their shingles. It was a tremendous act of civil disobedience. Very courageous, incredible. One hundred of them or so were sent to concentration camps to try to break their spirit, and it failed. Some of those doctors never returned. They died. But figuring they had a two-front war to deal with, the Germans actually, actually backed down. The Dutch doctors in a civil disobedience actually defeated the Nazi occupiers, and the pressure was taken off, and they put their shingles back up. A tremendous act of courage. This is the nation that hit Anne Frank, hit Jews. Yet the grandchildren of those incredibly courageous doctors are now doing willingly what some doctors died to keep from doing during World War II. When I was in the Netherlands um, researching the book I wrote before Culture of Death called uh, Forced Exit, I met with a Dutch ethicist who was opposed to euthanasia, and I asked him, of all places, why the Netherlands? And we talked about some of the incredible things that the Netherlands has been involved with. And like a good academic, he really got into the subject, and he's pacing back and forth, right? Smoking a pipe, actually. And he finally said, I think it's something that I call the arrogance of the good. I thought that was a very interesting thought. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, we have always been good, ergo we are good. He said it would really hurt our self-image and make us think we are not the country we believe ourselves to be if we admitted that what we are doing is wrong and not good. So we cling to the bad because we have the arrogance of the good. And that made a lot of sense to me, and I think it is a lesson for our country as well. The arrogance of the good. And you found in the Netherlands that euthanasia has just expanded almost geometrically, and the Dutch people, even the worse it gets, the more they cling to it. And the only thing that I can think of is the arrogance of the good. Herb Hendon, who's, a, uh, uh, who's written extensively about uh, euthanasia in the Netherlands, he's the head of the American Foundation on, uh, on, on Suicide Prevention. Um, he says that doctors don't tell the full truth in the Netherlands about what's going on, which they will tell outside of the Netherlands because they don't want to break the social consensus, which is also very interesting. Uh, and I, I believe him. He's a, he's a remarkable writer and uh, has studied this and, and started his um, research into euthanasia as an agnostic on the topic. So he didn't go in there looking to destroy euthanasia in the Netherlands. He wanted to find out whether it was really worthwhile. But you find now, and, and there have been Dutch uh, uh, documentaries on infanticide, um, and again, remember, they can't ask to be killed. 
The first uh, infanticide I know of that reached court, and in, in the Netherlands, these doctors who were engaged in some of these practices are not being prosecuted to be put in jail. It's not the adversary system that we have in the United States. I met with Eugene Satorius, who's the lawyer over there, who's really pushing the euthanasia agenda. And, and I really liked him, a very personable guy. And as a lawyer, I recognize a first-rate legal mind. He's Darth Vader. But, <laughs> but he talked about how, you know, these prosecutions are not done to punish doctors but to create a precedent so that we will know the right and wrong thing to do. And he represented the doctor. Oh, he told me, he said, I've just become a Catholic. I said, oh, does the Pope know? <laughs> but he said that he represented this doctor in this case I'm about to describe. And what happened was a child was born with spina bifida. And I think most of you know that spina bifida, the child is born with an opening in the spine and often leads to hydrocephaly, which is water on the brain. And, and sometimes people with spina bifida, uh, if they get proper medical treatment, do very well. Some, and some are disabled. Some um, uh, are incontinent. Some die. But they all deserve a chance to make of their life what their life will be because it's their life. Well, what happened was three days after the child was born, this doctor euthanized the child with spina bifida. And when asked in court why he did it, the doctor said, well, every time we picked the baby up, it screamed in pain. Why did it scream in pain? He hadn't sewn up the lesion in the back. He hadn't drained the fluid from the brain. Of course the baby screamed in pain. It was subject to neglect. And so the answer to the neglect was to kill the baby. I mean, it's self-justifying. And that doctor was found technically guilty and not punished and told to go out and have good luck in future legal proceedings by the judge. I find it quite appalling. I want to talk a little bit also, I usually don't do that in this particular speech, but I'd like to talk a little about, about your friend Lee Silver, who's also on this campus. And Lee Silver, uh, it seems to me, is a real eugenicist. Um, he has written a book, uh, as you know, called uh, Remaking Eden, which I found quite interesting. And he looks forward to a time in our distant future when there will exist a special group of mental beings who have been genetically modified from human beings. And he says, although these beings can trace their ancestry back directly to Homo sapiens, they are as different from humans as humans are from the primitive worms with tiny brains that first crawled along the Earth's surface. This is something he celebrates. He says that, getting back to personhood, non-personhood, with regard to embryonic life, he said that we have to look at life in two senses. He says life in a general sense is rooted within the individual cell. And then he says the human being, life in a special sense, is localized to the region between our ears. Now, that's making you know, almost a, uh, an altar or a god out of our, our, our brain functioning, it seems to me. It's saying that what makes us human, and he does say this, is that is rationality, which is the same thing as, as the distinction between person and non-person. And he goes on to talk about, in terms of embryonic research and genetic manipulations and so forth, he asks these following questions. Is the embryo alive? Clearly, yes, he says. This is on page 41 of his book. Is the embryo human? Yes, again, but so are the cells that fall off the skin every day. 
Think about what he's saying here. He's equating an embryo with skin that falls off when you scratch. Now, that's just plain old false anyway, scientifically, because this is a little piece of me, but an embryo is a unique individual with its own genetic makeup, its own sex. It's not a piece of skin cell. It's not that at all. Then he goes on to say, is the embryo human life? No. What is it, Martian? He says, recall from the first chapter the two different meanings that we give to life, one for life in the general sense and the other in the special sense. And he says, because the human embryo does not have any neurological attributes, we describe to human life in the special, special sense that, that the embryo is not human. This is also very dangerous. I mean, we are basically saying that human life isn't human. We are redefining what it means to be human beings. That's a biological issue, not a subjective sociological issue or cultural issue. And let's talk about embryonic research and stem cell research just for a second. I think this is really one of the most important issues we face, and I don't have time to really go into it in depth. But I want you to think about this very seriously. I'm afraid the whole embryonic debate has been too caught up in abortion politics. But I don't think it's about abortion at all. Why is abortion legal? Now, whether one agrees with the pro-life position or the pro-choice position, the reason the law says abortion is legal is because the law says it does not wish to force a woman to do with her body that which she does not wish to do, i.e., gestate and give birth. Now, one can agree or disagree with that. But in embryonic research, there's no woman being forced to do anything with her body. And so we've actually come face to face with something very profound and foundational. Does human life have value simply and solely and merely because it is human life? The filter, if you will, of forcing a woman to do with her body that which she does not wish to do, which so roils the whole abortion discussion, is gone. And we now have to decide as a society whether embryonic life has value simply and merely because it's human. I submit that if the answer to that question is no, we have one future. And I don't think it's a happy future. But if the answer is yes, then we have another future because we will be standing up for the sanctity of human life and the equality of human life. An embryo is said not to look like a human being. Sure it does at that stage of development. I look like a human being who's 52, I hope, because that's how old I am. Some of you, I remember that time, look like you're about 20 or 21. Does human life have value simply because it's human? I think that is something that needs to be really thought through carefully. And with regard to embryonic stem cell research, there is so much that can be done with alternative sources, adult sources of stem cells, umbilical cord stem cells, uh, that you're not going to actually need to engage in destructive embryonic research to get the hoped-for values of this great potential medical future. And that's the subject of another lecture. But I want to leave you with this thought on before I leave the embryonic issue. This is a press release from Geron. And this is uh, dated uh, Monday, October 1st, 2001. 
Geron grows stem cells without mice feeder cells. In other words, in order to keep stem cell lines going, they have used some mice feeder cells uh, previously. And now Geron is saying they've been able to, this is talking about human stem cell lines, they've been able to keep these stem cell lines going without the mouse cells. And here's what they said, quote, the finding greatly facilitates the development of scalable manufacturing processes to enable commercialization of human embryonic stem cell-based products. Think about how appalling that is. They are talking about patenting and marketing human life. The finding greatly facilitates the development of scalable manufacturing processes to enable commercialization of human embryonic stem cell-based products. That gets us back to what Beecham said, which was that if some of us are not humans, we ought to think of them as sources of organs or to be used in medical research. In other words, a natural resource. It's happening, the potential to marketize, it's not a word, but you know what I'm saying, to commodify and objectify human life as Joseph Fletcher wanted is profound not only at its beginning but at its end. Marketing human life. Some people have called that the new slavery. I think it's worth pondering and considering very carefully. And it's not just the science we have to be concerned with, but the morality and the ethics. And we also have to be concerned about where these things lead because I know people who, are, who in, an, in a vacuum wouldn't mind embryonic research, but they know that it doesn't exist in a vacuum and that it would lead to other places and other things. Um, this is an article from Ellen Goodman, who many of you probably know, dated January 17, 1980. And this was back when the IVF technology in vitro fertilization was coming online. And there was a controversy. And she wrote, a fear of many protesting the opening of this clinic, which, by the way, was the Jones Clinic in Virginia, is that doctors there will fertilize myriad eggs and discard the extras and the abnormal as if they were no meaningful than a dish of caviar. But this fear seems largely unwarranted. Well, that's exactly what's happening now. And I'm not here to talk about IVF, but that's exactly what's happening now. We are actually justifying embryonic stem cell research on the basis that embryos created in IVF are going to be destroyed anyway, so we might as well use them. See, that's appealing to the pragmatic nature in the, human, uh, in the American society. But yet, people like Geron are saying, well, wait a second, it's not just those embryos. We're going to have to make embryos for the purposes of destruction, which is happening now at the Jones Institute. They, they announced it. They are creating embryos for the purposes of destruction. And they're beginning to, uh, other companies, consider cloning. And there's a controversy right now in the government as to whether to ban human cloning or not. And there are two forms of cloning, supposedly. There's only cloning. But there's therapeutic cloning they talk about, which is for experiments. And there's reproductive cloning, which, in, which you take the clone and you put it in a uterus and uh, gestate and, and give birth to the clone. And people like Geron are saying, well, you can't ban all human cloning, particularly therapeutic cloning, because you're going to need it for stem cell therapy. Well, wait a second. I thought it was only supposed to be about the discardable IVF embryos. Well, no, it turns out that if you put embryonic tissue into another person, there might be an immune system reaction. 
which would force the person receiving the embryonic stem cells to take anti-immune suppressant drugs to prevent rejection. So what they're saying, uh, the companies are saying, is you can't ban cloning because what's going to have to happen for stem cell therapy is we're going to have to make a clone of the patient. Then when that clone is a week old, harvest the stem cells, make the lines, and then inject that into the body so that there won't be this rejection. So you can see how one thing very quickly leads to another. And then, of course, we'll have to engage in genetic manipulation and eugenic improvements, etc., etc. Ellen Goodman goes on to say, now we have to watch the development of this technology, willing to see it grow in the right direction and ready to say no. I emailed Ellen Goodman when I got this. I thought it was very interesting. And I said, this is what you said back in 1980, and now you're saying that you're... You've, come, you've taken a completely different tack, yet everything you said wouldn't happen has occurred. This is the slippery slope. Uh, Richard John Newhouse was once asked whether he believed in the slippery slope. He said, yeah, like I believe in the Hudson River, which I think is a great line and is absolutely true. And Ellen Goodman proved it because she emailed me back a very nice note, and she said, well, my lines have changed, but I'm still nervous. Well, that's nice. We can all be nervous and hand-wringing all the way to, you know, off the cliff. But that's how the slippery slope works. One thing leads to another. A leads to B to C, and pretty soon you're at Z. Yet at A, you never would have accepted Z. To give you a, a really extreme example, in 1936, if you told a train engineer they were going to be taking human cargo to Auschwitz, they'd have said, you're out of your mind. I would never do such a thing. Yet six years later, choo-choo, they were doing it because we're like sometimes like a frog, that old cliche, being slowly boiled, doesn't even know it's dying. And that can happen in culture and society too. And I submit we are in danger of that very thing. I want to have time for questions. I am a lawyer. Short-winded is not exactly my strong suit. (laughs) I've actually been told I make uh, Castro seem short-winded. and you've seen a little of that today. I want to talk a little bit about a real policy that's occurring now in our hospitals that I think goes directly from this idea that the value of life should be based on quality rather than equality, and that's something called feudal care theory. (coughs) Feudal care theory works something like this, F-U-T-I-L-E. If you think that, if the doctor thinks that the quality of a patient's life is not worth sustaining, but that patient or the patient's family wants the patient's life sustained, then the doctor has the right to say no, even over the patient's or the family's objections, and refuse to provide the care. Now, this is not physiological futility, which a doctor should refuse. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about there, and I'll use a wild example to demonstrate the point. Let's assume that I had an earache, and I went to my doctor, and I said, Doc, I've got this terrible earache. Take out my appendix. Well, of course, the doctor is duty-bound and professionally bound to say no. Why? It's futile. Taking out my appendix won't do anything for my earache. Or a little more closer, I've got a gut problem. I go to the doctor. I'm diagnosed as having an ulcer. And I said, good, give me chemotherapy. Doctor's going to say, no, that's futile. The chemotherapy isn't going to do anything for your ulcer. There's a form of futile care that is provided all the time in this country, people with viral infections getting antibiotics. Antibiotics don't do anything for viruses, as we've learned to our 
uh, fear uh, in this uh, current fear of anthrax and versus smallpox. But doctors give it for good PR and maybe it has a placebo effect, but it's actually futile. That's not the kind of futility I'm talking about. In that kind of futility, the treatment is not given because it does not work. In futile care theory, the treatment is refused because it does work. I've had people call my office of uh, doctors refusing to give antibiotics to 90-year-old women. And when, the, when I asked why the doctor refused to do it, the daughter said, the doctor said, your mother's 90, she's going to die of an infection, it might as well be this one. Can you imagine? I said to the woman, well, the way to handle that is threaten to throw the, sue the blankety-blank-blank blank out of the doctor. That'll get his attention. And it did. And in fact, the patient recovered. But remember, if the doctor's saying no because the treatment works, that's value judgment. That's not medicine. That's saying that the patient is futile, not the treatment. And patients do make mistakes, I believe, and families do sometimes make people stay too long. But whose value judgment should, at the end of the day, decide whether somebody's life is extended or not? The doctors, the HMOs, or the families of the patients? must be the families of the patients. Otherwise, the definition of medicine has been completely changed. And this, by the way, getting back to slippery slopes for a second, is just the opening, because I've talked to futilitarians, as I've called them, and I've said, well, you know, part of this obviously is to save money. I said, um, that's not going to save that much money because end-of-life care is only 10% of the entire health care budget. It's more of Medicare's budget, but of the entire health care budget, it's about 10%. And I said, you're not going to save enough money to really make that much of a difference. And they said, well, we know that. And I said, well, what would come next? And they, one man uh, said, Dr. Murphy said, uh, well, marginally beneficial care. I said, well, give me an example of marginally beneficial care. And to show you how this goes, he said, well, we wouldn't let 80-year-old women have mammograms. See, you're beginning to say some lives have greater value than others, and then that uh, translates into certain policies that are harmful to people, particularly people who are powerless, people who are marginalized and defenseless. The way out of the, um, I'm going to sue the blankety-blank out of you, dilemma for the futilitarians is for hospitals to create formal protocols, formal procedures by which they hope to be able to overcome the lawsuit of the patient. Suing after the patient dies is no good because uh, juries often see these lies as having little value. The time to prevent this is during the patient's life getting injunctions, which has happened a few times. I don't have time to talk about all those cases. But there's, this is um, an example of a feudal care protocol uh, written up in Health Progress magazine, July, August 2000, which has been put in place in the Mercy Systems, uh, which is a Catholic health care system in Philadelphia. And what happens under this system, if you want to look it up, is if there's a futility dispute, it goes to something called the um, IIRB, the Institutional Interdisciplinary Review Board, which is basically turning a hospital ethics committee, which is supposed to be a mediating body to help people work through difficult choices, into a, an adjudicatory body, semi-quasi-judiciary, to decide thumbs down or thumbs up 
to whether wanted life-sustaining treatment will be provided. And if the committee says no, then listen to this. Institutional system transfers to another physician to provide the intervention that has been judged by the IIRB to be medically inappropriate will not be allowed. In other words, even if you get a doctor willing to provide the treatment that the other doctor didn't want to provide, the hospital can say no. Now, the purpose for these procedures is to avoid lawsuits. Actually, not to avoid them, but to win them. This is an article uh, from the Cambridge Healthcare of Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics, Volume 9, Number 4, Fall 2000, which, in, which reviewed 26 California hospitals. 24 had feudal care policies in place. All but seven gave the final decision to somebody other than the patient or the family. And the reason for this, a major reason, is, quote, hospitals are likely to find the legal system willing and even eager to defer to well-defined and procedurally scrupulous processes for internal resolutions of futility disputes. In other words, what they hope to be able to do when the patient or the family sues is go to the judge and say, look, we're the doctors, we're the bioethicists, we've worked all this out. They've had a process that they've gone through. Who are you to say otherwise? And I'll tell you something, judges don't like to make these kinds of decisions. This is a pretty good idea, a pretty good strategy if you want to be, if you want to be able to refuse wanted life-sustaining treatment. It's the flip side of being hooked up to a machine against your will. A new game of doctor knows best. Only this time, instead of being forced onto the machines, you can't get them if you want them. And remember, it doesn't just apply to machines. It can apply to antibiotics and anything else other than comfort care. It's also feudal care theory is getting into legislation. Senator Arlen Specter has introduced Senate uh, Bill 24, which seeks to expand access to health care for disabled folk and some others. But buried on page 131 of a 171-page bill is this. After saying that patients have a right to decline medical treatment, which I support, nobody has the right, everybody should have the right to refuse unwanted medical treatment. That's what the hospice philosophy is. I'm a hospice volunteer. I've seen it at work. If you don't want your life sustained by extraordinary means, you don't have to. Die at home peacefully in bed with your suffering and pain control. That's hospice. And so no problem there. But what if you want, and it says you have the right to consent to treatment. But here's what it says. Nothing in this subsection shall be construed to require that any individual be offered or to state that any individual may demand medical treatment which the health care provider does not have available or which is under prevailing medical standards, either futile or otherwise not medically indicated. In other words, in these protocols. So if the hospital says this is not medically indicated, then they don't have to give it. And such a law has already come into uh, being in California Probate Code 4735, a health care provider or health care institution may decline to comply with an individual health care instruction or health care decision that requires medically ineffective health care, that's physiological, futile, no problem there, or health care contrary to generally accepted health care standards applicable to the health care provider or institution. So if they say something shouldn't be done, it's almost like uh, Napoleon crowning himself emperor. It doesn't have to be done. And this is to designed to move us, in my opinion, to an explicit regimen of health care rationing, which is medical discrimination 
using a polite name. There are also efforts that I don't have time to get into to redefine permanent unconsciousness to be the same thing as death. And for purposes of organ procurement, remember what Beecham said. Remember what happens in bioethics philosophy and values translates into action. That's the purpose of bioethics. It's not just a discourse. It's not just musing. Peter Singer is not trying to just talk like a bunch of angels, how many angels fit on the head of a pin. Peter Singer is trying and is indeed changing society. And that's what bioethics wants to do, and I submit that those of us who oppose those agendas have to engage the issue. Society needs to be changed, I agree, but not in the way I believe that they wish to take us. Back on the Lancet, some doctors for the International Forum for Transplant Ethics have said, if the legal definition of death were to be changed to include comprehensive irreversible loss of higher brain function, it would be possible to take the life of a patient or more accurately to stop the heart since the patient would be defined as dead by a lethal injection and then remove the organs, etc., etc. I suppose if one of these patients woke up, we'd have to call it a resurrection. Makes no sense. Listen to what uh, another bioethicist says. Robert Veach, M. Veach. He's at Georgetown now. He was the first executive director of the Hastings Center. In the Journal of Clinical Ethics, fall 1992, it seems obvious that one should not bury respiring cadavers. But the reason may not be because they are not dead. It is simply unesthetic to bury someone while still breathing, either mechanically or spontaneously. We would almost certainly withdraw life support and wait until bodily functions cease for aesthetic reasons, but this cannot be taken to establish that we believe respiring patients are alive. I mean, that's just crazy. You know, you can take a stink bug and glue wings to it, paint it orange and yellow, and call it a butterfly, but it's still a stink bug. Death is a biological event, cannot be turned into a social construct, or again, the most weak and vulnerable among us will be victimized, oppressed, and exploited. And where does this lead? Is there a duty to die? This is a cover story in the Hastings Center report. March, April 1997, guess what the answer is? For many in bioethics, not all, there is a duty to die. A duty to die is more likely when continuing to live will impose significant burdens, emotional burdens, extensive caregiving, destruction of life plans, and yes, financial hardship on your family and loved ones. This gets back to the kind of utilitarian idea that if you cause more unhappiness than happiness, then you shouldn't be around. It goes on to say, the duty to die becomes greater as you grow older. To have reached the age of, say, 75 or 80 years without being ready to die is itself a moral failing, the sign of a life out of touch with life's basic realities. This is not the path we want to take. We want to go forward, deal with the high-tech medicine, deal with the challenges we face, but I submit that unless... We do so based on an absolute commitment to the equality of all human life. We're going to end up falling off a cliff. And I want to finish with what Dr. Leo Alexander said. He was an investigator in the Nuremberg trials dealing with the medical aspects of the Holocaust. He wrote this in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1949. Quote, Whatever proportions these crimes finally assumed, 
It became evident to all who investigated them that they started with small beginnings. The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift in emphasis in the basic attitudes of physicians. It started with the acceptance of the attitude basic to the euthanasia movement that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. This attitude in its earliest stages concerned itself merely with severely and chronically sick. Gradually, the sphere to those, of those to be included in this category was enlarged to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted, and finally, all non-Germans. He finally issued a prophetic warning. In an increasingly utilitarian society, these patients with chronic diseases are being looked down upon with increasing definiteness as unwanted ballast. A certain amount of rather open contempt for the people who cannot be rehabilitated has developed, and you see that throughout bioethics. This is probably due to a good deal of unconscious hostility because these people for whom there seem to be no effective remedies have become a threat to the newly acquired delusions of omnipotence. At this point, Americans should remember that the enormity of the euthanasia movement is present in their own midst. seems to me that we who refuse to learn the lessons of history may be doomed to repeat them. Let's stand for the sanctity of all human life, the equality of all human life, and create a better tomorrow that accepts all of us and rejects none of us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This has been a well-reasoned criticism that's been delivered with a great deal of passion, and we all appreciate that. It is, of course, the proper function of a university to raise foundational questions, such as what is it about human life that gives it its inherent dignity and its worth? And these are questions that have... uh, real implications as they manifest themselves in social policies and in legal policies as well. And so we're very grateful to you uh, for your very thoughtful discussion here today. And on behalf of the James Madison program that is sponsoring this uh, today, we're we're very grateful to you. Uh, I'm going to open the floor up for discussion. We have a couple of minutes before we can uh, proceed to a, uh, a reception. Yes, Dr. Burke. Some of this statement seems so outrageous, it's hard to imagine any possible context. You know, I have to say, I'm not sure that Peter Singer has said he was quoted out of context. I think some of his defenders have said he was quoted out of context. I don't think Peter Singer shies away from what he believes in. At least I've never seen any indication that he does. Um, I think he would readily admit uh, that, in fact, he has written that if you accept his utilitarian uh, interest, utilitarianism, that there is no such thing under that system as universal human rights. He agrees with that. He, and, he, and he celebrates it. I, I find it quite appalling. I mean, we've been working particularly in the last 200 years to really create human rights that are universally applied, and, and, and Dr. Singer wishes to move away from them. But a lot of the, I, I think a lot of uh, people don't want to look squarely in the face at what his advocacy represents. And so they tend to look away and try to justify 
uh, how Peter Singer could say such things. I also think that because uh, some of Peter Singer's most vocal critics are in the pro-life movement, that there are a lot of people, particularly in the media, who think that the pro-life movement is beyond the pale. And so if the pro-life movement doesn't like Peter Singer, there must be something right about him. And I think that's just the nature of our society today. But I would point out that uh, even more vocal than uh, the pro-life movement against Peter Singer is the disability rights movement, who have uh, had demonstrations on this campus uh, at his appointment, and because they see themselves as the targets. And, and I think quite rightly so. And now Peter Singer would say and has said that, listen, physically disabled people have nothing to fear from his advocacy. Well, but cognitively disabled people do. And uh, disabled rights activists don't make a distinction between cognitive disabilities and physical disabilities. So I, I don't think it's Peter Singer who's saying he's being quoted out of context. Oh. <laughs> um, Lincoln's friend uh, Joshua Speed said, you know, stay away from slavery issue. It's not your business. It has nothing to do with you. And he wrote back to him, of course it does. It has the power to make you miserable. That's interesting. Uh, I don't know whether Dr. Singer has taken my unhappiness at euthanasia into account or my unhappiness at killing infants into account. I, I probably would think that he wouldn't because he's looking at first the family happiness or unhappiness, and secondly, the entire society. You know, it's all, Joseph Fletcher said it's all about weighing and balancing. Um, uh, euthanasia is a different issue in one sense, because if you're talking about voluntary euthanasia, but, uh, and I don't have time to really describe it, but I think it's the most profound form of abandonment, because what it does for people who want to be euthanized uh, is it confirms their worst fears about their future and about themselves. Um, and let me give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. My mother once needed a hip replacement. And I live in, in the Bay Area, and my mother lives in Los Angeles. And we were having a discussion as to whether or not she would, I wanted her to come live with my wife and I while she had the hip replacement so she could recuperate with us. And she, of course, wanted to be in her own house, which is certainly understandable. And in that situation, I said, all right, then I'll come down and be with you. And I said, the only thing I want, Mom, is I want another phone line so I can do my work. And one day she called me as we were having this family discussion, and she said, I figured it out. I said, what? And she said, I'll go to a nursing home. And I paused a second, and I said, are you out of your mind? Do you know what my mother said? Thank God, I just didn't want to be a burden. Now, if you take what my mother said about that hip replacement and you translate that into the assisted suicide issue or euthanasia, and if my mom, let's say, had had a, a more serious malady than a hip, eating a hip replacement and said, you know, maybe I should have assisted suicide, and if I had said, well, Mom, it's your choice, I submit that even though I might not have intended to because I'd been told by society that I have to, you know, honor and, uh, autonomy, that I would be abandoning her in the most profound way. And if I did that to my mother, she'd want assisted suicide. So these issues of compassion really cut a lot of different ways that often don't get described in the very facile and shallow discussion over euthanasia and assisted suicide that we usually have generally surrounding Jack of Orkin. 
And by the way, 70% of Jack Kevorkian's victims were not terminally ill. Five weren't even sick upon autopsy. One had accused her husband of wife abuse two weeks before he brought her to Kevorkian. Another inherited $500,000, the woman who took her friend to Kevorkian. So the media has not done a good job with this issue, and it's very difficult to, uh, I mean, it's another hour and a half. <laughs> uh, I'm up for it if you are, <laughs> but uh, I hope that answers your question. Yes, Professor George. Uh, one of you uh, said that you didn't have an intent to bring up the question of academic appointments and uh, mm -hmm. so forth, but since you did, I wanted to follow up with it a little bit. Sure. Um, help, help me think through this dilemma. Um, I'm someone who, in my own professional work, uh, criticizes the view that uh, human beings are a, or first, uh, human beings are a dualism of a, of an impersonal or non-personal body which is inhabited by a personal consciousness. Mm -hmm. I reject the idea that we're uh, that what a uh, human being is is a, a non-personal, uh, a personal consciousness inhabiting a non-personal body. But I like, and I think it's appropriate in a university, desirable indeed for there to be people who take that view for me to argue with them. Sure. I also think that it would be nice to take a lot of us around to argue with them. Right. But, Which uh, is less likely. Yeah. Well, yeah. But here I am. The uh, token. The token. Know. Yeah. Uh, I'm a critic of utilitarianism. Right. Uh, but uh, I like having utilitarians around to argue with. It seems sure. to me that that, while an incorrect position, as I judge the matter, deliberation and much argument, I think it's a respectable position. It, it, it's, it's a plausible position. It gets through the door. Uh, you know, it's something to be argued with. Uh, but if I combine the dualistic conception of the person, from a philosopher, I combine the dualistic conception of the person with the utilitarian ethical method, <coughs> unless I keep my mouth shut, I'm going to end up saying, or unless I say, well, look, I don't talk about those issues, I'm going to end up, end up saying, you know what? It's really not wrong to kill infants. It's really not wrong to kill Alzheimer victims. People on, in, in persistent vegetative states are really not persons that collect of organs to be harvested. I'll draw, draw all these conclusions, the expression of which leads you to say a university shouldn't hire a guy. Well, it, 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 I think there are some lines, uh, and I understand academic freedom and so forth, but, you know, if, if somebody came in, uh, who was that uh, Ph. the famous, was it Shockley who was a racist? Yeah, Dr. Shockley. Now, do you really think that today that Dr. Shockley would have been hired by Princeton having expressed racist views? He would not. Thank you. What about his ability to uh, express his views and uh, his scientific credentials? The point is that the university is willing to draw some lines, but not others. You don't have full academic freedom at this university. You will, I, I'm willing, now if they would hire Leon Cass in the Center for Human Va uh, Life as a counterpoint to Peter Singer, I might, you know, think, well, you know, there's something different going on here. Yeah. <laughs> But 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 what? But you're not getting you're not getting in that center for human values. I, unless there's okay, but these are two separate arguments. There's one argument that says what's wrong, and I've made it myself. But what's wrong with contemporary universities like ours 
is precisely that we don't have sufficient representation of the critic of mainstream, what's become mainstream, crit the critic yeah. view of what's mainstream. Yeah. That's a different argument from saying that we shouldn't have those who advocate the kinds of things that you and I think are out. But if I, but if I advocated lynching of blacks, it would not, no matter how many PhDs I had, it would never be considered acceptable. Why is the idea of killing babies acceptable? Well, but then you have to help me think through my challenge, since I think it's acceptable to, although wrong-headed, to defend the dualistic position of conception of the person. Mm -hmm. And I think it's acceptable to wrong-headed to accept even, you know, hedonistic act utilitarianism. Right. Put them together, unless the guy keeps his mouth shut, you got <laughs> Well, and that's the defense of Peter Singer. And uh, it just seems to me that a university can bring in people to argue utilitarianism without bringing in the foremost advocate for infanticide in the world. Now, um, obviously the university is free to do so. Nobody, nobody and, and most not, not least me, but why would, why would the university uh, accept someone like Peter Singer and not bring in somebody as a counterpoint like Leon Cass? That's the other side. There's no argument. Right. And, and so it strikes me that what's going on here, and I know that uh, now I'm not an academic, and I know academics get very uh, emotional about protecting their prerogatives, and I believe those prerogatives should say, I still think it was disgraceful to bring him in of all people when there are plenty of other qualified people who could have argued a utilitarian perspective and uh, not been so, forthri so forthright in the idea of killing infants which is, uh, as is, even as if it's restricted to disabled infants, is as bigoted as racism. Why is it wrong on a campus to be bigoted against uh, uh, black folk, but not wrong in terms of getting a, a very prestigious position at the, the top university in the country and one of the top in the world when you're bigoted against cognitively disabled people? I don't understand the distinction. To me, it's the same bigotry. If bigotry is, is something that we can talk about, then bring in Shockley. But if it's not, then, then quit pretending it's all about academic freedom, because it's about academic freedom for people who actually, we don't think that they're so bad. Can you imagine a bioethics major university bringing in a pro-lifer in the bioethics department? If they would, I'd have more uh, sympathy for your discussion. But I, it strikes me that they're after certain agendas, not uh, a complete discussion of both uh, of all sides of the issue. Um, I entered this university 15 years ago, and I retired down here, and I go to all kinds of lectures. Well, thank you for coming here. Right wing, left wing. I don't know what I am. <laughs> um, and last week, they had a major bioethics and religion conference mm -hmm. put on by the Center for the Study of Religion by the very good man named Robert Woodnell from the sociology department. Mm -hmm. And among the participants in varying roles were somebody from the Nazi Institute, Lee Singer, um, Peter, uh, Silver, right. Peter Singer, former president, Harold Shapiro. Right. I know who he is. Head of the Bioethics right. Commission under Clinton. And uh, our current president, Shirley Tilner, distinguished scientist, part of close to this area. And they take the thing, and I would recommend that you uh, get a copy of that. I'd like to see it. The conference. 
And I think you would find yourself in agreement with some of those people on a lot of issues. It was mm -hmm. not on euthanasia, it was more on reproductive technology and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I also, a week ago, in, in a building adjacent to this, or connected with this, um, there was a guy from the Hemlock Society. Right. Uh, and uh, I went to his little conference, a little uh, lecture in a building over here. And um, Peter Singer was the moderator. Just, you know, what happened. But the Hemlock Society guy was, he's a former Englishman. Derek Comfort. I, I assume. Yeah. I know yeah. Um, so I, I try to do them all. And, uh, <laughs> and I commend Professor George for bringing you here. Uh, he's a constitutional expert, and right. you're a prime example of the First Amendment in action. Ah, I detect someone who doesn't agree with me. <laughs> but I very much resent mm -hmm. your castigating Princeton University overall and all the administration uh, on, on their choice of people to run chairs. Uh, the, the trustees approved that. I agree. For, um, Harold Shapiro said he was not going to back down and for what he thought were very good reasons. I understand. So, instead of you being <clears throat> insulted about what Princeton does, I'm insulted about what you're saying about my alma mater and the way that they carry on. May I suggest, sir, that you're living in an insular world, that what goes on in these universities is important, and the discourse is important, but it also affects the lives and deaths of real people. When you bring, now let me say something. I am not an academic, which is pretty clear, but I think I am, I, I think I'm reflecting some real thoughts and emotions and values of people who are out there in mainstream who look to you folks in the universities to help make this a better society. And when somebody like Peter Singer is brought in, it is I think, and many people think, incredibly harmful because you're giving, let me just, I understand that, I'm, you're giving the prestige of this university, the best in the country, to those activities and those thoughts. And it adds a patina of tremendous um, um, extra respectability over what he says because it's almost like, and I know it isn't, giving the imprimatur of Princeton because I know that's not what's happening, but to the people out in society, that's what they see. And I think the university has to realize there's more and to the given, than the give and take going on here, which of course is an important part of any university. And I'm sorry you resent my anger. There's nothing I can do about it except get angry. But I'm, re I'm expressing an anger that is felt throughout, not throughout all of society, but through much of society at that appointment because I frankly think it's the same thing as bringing in David Duke and if David Duke was brought in you wouldn't be yelling at me because I criticized Princeton for bringing in David Duke but Princeton would never bring in David Duke. I disagree with you and I'm angry at you for, for putting that forth but I respect your right to do it. And I respect Princeton's right to bring in Peter Singer. I'm not trying to tear down the university or create a, plan a bomb. We'll have one more question. <laughs> yes, from a student. Yes. Um, I missed the first part of your talk, so you might have answered this question then, but what is the philosophical justification um, for the uniqueness or sacredness of human life that counters Singer and Silver's ideas of I think the justification is that if you do not have all human life having equal inherent moral worth, by definition, I'm glad you asked that because I don't think I addressed that, by definition, you end up with some people deemed as having less value than others, and that leads automatically to oppression, exploitation, and killing, which 
is being discussed here. We're talking about taking some people who we are labeling as having less value and saying they're subject to being killed or exploited for their organs or otherwise. The whole, the whole history of the human race, the biggest problem has been we've always created another. And what, what this does is create others based on different classifications than we've done in the past. But it's still creating another. And it seems to me the answer, if we're going to have one, to all of the, the horror that we end up causing each other is to say there's no such thing as them, there's only us. There are no others, there's just us. And this is just another in a series of theories uh, that have uh, done that. But, I mean, from all the quotations that you've read, it's pretty obvious that people like Singer and others aren't afraid of those conclusions. Or I don't... So, yeah. is there an argument that, besides just saying I don't like the I don't think that they have actually addressed that aspect of the argument. What they've addressed, generally, is the idea that the reason humanity uh, is unique is because uh, we are made in the image and likeness of God or we have a soul. And Peter Singer would said, well, I don't believe in God, so I don't think that's important. And it seems to me that we have to, since this is a secular society, we have to engage these issues in secular ways. Peter Singer will say it's arbitrary to say that uh, human beings have special symptom because they're human, but it's just as arbitrary for him to say what counts is uh, that a being have life, uh, have um, worth because it can suffer. He's created his own, what he thinks is important, arbitrary foundation by which we will judge issues of life, death, value, and lack of value. You might say I've done the same thing. And I've done the same thing based on the consequences of not doing that. If we're not all considered equal, then we're going to end up with oppression and exploitation. And I thought that the whole point of our last 200 years was universal human rights. And now I find people like Professor Singer want to actually deconstruct that idea. In the end, we have to decide, and it is an arbitrary decision, what will be our founding principle? What will be the rock to which we attach all our other value systems? I say it has to be equality of all human life because without that, other humans will, be, will get it in the neck to put it in the vernacular. Peter Singer says it's whether a being can suffer or whether a being has rationality. That's the division. That is the struggle, moral struggle that we're now engaged in. And I don't think it's something that should be decided in the university, nor do I think the university thinks that, but eventually in a democratic society, it's going to be all of us that have to decide this. But until, what I'm trying to do is get these discussions out of the ivory tower and into the public square, because most people are not aware that these discussions are occurring and they're crucial to their futures. So, so in the end, you think the ultimate choice is arbitrary? Whatever, either way. And Peter Singer says his is rational and mine's irrational. He's as arbitrary as I am. He, what he thinks is important is suffering. What I think is important is humanity. All right. Well, we're going to end uh, our, our discussion today. This has been uh, a very healthy debate, and I thank you all for joining us today. Uh, I also would like to invite you to the reception that follows uh, this lecture, which is just outside of the lecture hall. And I hope that you'll also join us at our next Alpheus T. Mason uh, lecture sponsored by the James Madison Program, at which we're going to bring in uh, Judge Martin Feldman, who's going to take another look at uh, the election of 2000 and, and Bush v. Gore, and it, it promises to be fun. So thank you. Thank you.